Hello, and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Jim Townsend. And we're so glad you can join us. Uh, On Monday, President Putin gave an angry, unfocused, and uninspired address covering his longstanding grievances, including his claim that Ukraine does not have a right to existence. Many observers viewed the speech as a declaration of war, that he was making the case to Russians about why conflict in Ukraine is necessary. In the end, he recognized Luhansk and Donetsk as independent, and shortly thereafter, he predictably sent in Russian forces to help, quote unquote, protect the regions. On Tuesday, Putin clarified that Russia was recognizing all of the regions as independent, including territory that was Ukrainian controlled. In addition, he requested legislative approval to use Russian forces outside of Russia, issued unrealistic demands on Ukraine, including recognition of Russia's claim to Crimea and Ukrainian neutrality, and he evacuated all Russian embassy staff out of Kiev. Uh, The Russian troops, now estimated at about 190,000, were also on the move. It is still unclear whether Putin will escalate militarily or whether this is another step in a long grind on Ukraine. Um, Arguably, Putin is now worse off in Ukraine than he was before he declared the republics as independent. uh, As his decision to do so spelled the end of the Minsk II agreements, which is Russia's primary mechanism for for securing autonomy for the regions in Ukraine's east and therefore giving Russia a veto over Ukraine's foreign policy. Uh, Condemning this move as the beginning of an invasion, the United States, the UK, and EU have all begun to move to impose sanctions on Russia, including the cancellation of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Uh, And so today we are ready to kind of, again, with a rapid response, take stock of where we are. Lots happening over the last 48 hours. And to help us make sense of all of that, we're really happy to have with us Rob Lee. Rob, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Um, By way of quick background, Rob Lee is a senior fellow in the Foreign Policy Research Institute's Eurasia program, as well as a PhD student researching Russian defense policy at King's College London's War Studies Department. He's a former Marine Infantry Officer, Alpha Fellow, and Visiting Fellow at the Center for Analysis of Strategic, uh, for sorry, of Strategies and Technologies, which is a Russian think tank focused on defense policy. Uh, so glad to have you with us. Um, have been, I know, as many have relied so much on your analysis on Twitter um, to understand uh, what's going on. And so maybe, you know, we've been doing these podcasts somewhat regularly, but would love to hear your take on, you know, what's been happening over the last 48 hours with Putin's speech and all of the kind of subsequent decisions and actions and movements since then. Kind of where do you think we are in the arc of this crisis? Sure. Uh, thanks for having me on. So I know some people uh, looked the last two days and saw, you know, had, kind of had an optimistic take on it as, as though that was a compromise solution. And I, I don't think that's accurate. Um, and, and one of the things, and this is true for the, the entire bill that's going on, it's been going on for a long time, you know, decision to, to do, you know, the, 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 the current situation is a continuation of the buildup that began in the spring of 2021. Some of the units that are deployed then from the Central Mali District at base in Siberia, it never left. So they've been there the entire time. Um, and then the, the decision to start the second buildup, it, it was probably made sometime in July or August because we found out this new contract reservist system called, called BARS, the acronym BARS. That was the first announced in mid-August. It was implemented on a crash course you know, very hastily. And they were trying to raise really large numbers of contract reservists. And that was, that was significant because most reservists, the Russian military conscripts, 
um, and, and they're not really well trained and conscripts are not supposed to be deployed beyond Russia's borders. They're not supposed to be sent to combat. There's a really big kind of domestic political reason why. Um, so the fact that they were raising this, you know, trying to raise this really significantly large reservist system of contract soldiers very quickly, you know, at a time I found it kind of strange, right? And that it wasn't more uh, information beforehand. And when you look at what's happening right now, right, it's, it's very easy to interpret what that was, right? They were, they were preparing themselves if they need to conduct a large scale um, ground invasion to Ukraine to have additional forces to do so, right? Maybe to occupy train, what have you. So, so the, the thinking from Russia has been going back that far at least. And, and what's problematic about this is that everything that, that, that Russia's done in the last, I think, six months has been deliberate, right? It's, it's been, you know, it takes time to mass forces, you know, the, the size of the force they, they mass. So everything I think that they've done is deliberate. I think most of the things, you know, they, they had a good idea back in, in early fall about how this was gonna go. I personally think that President Putin accepted when he did the second, the second buildup that if, if they didn't attain the concessions or goals they wanted, that they would use military force. So military force was gonna be a resort and that, it, that they basically accepted this might be necessary. And that I think, you know, once the bill began and really got into earnest and made, they made demands, uh, at that point, backing down, there would be costs. It'd be cost of credibility. Um, the lessons that NATO would draw and Zelensky would draw would be, would be bad because, you know, President Zelensky would be even more emboldened. Um, NATO members would say, okay, that was a bluff, the second bluff this year. And then there, there would be interpretation from NATO members saying, you know what, we, we ramped up arms deliveries to Ukraine in, during this crisis. And guess what? Putin backed down. That's how you stand up to them. Those are not lessons that, that, that Russia wants us to learn. And so that's why I, I thought all along that it's, it's probably not a lesson he's gonna, going to let us learn because he, he's going to be willing to escalate. And so you know, when you look at the last two days, um, what's concerning to me is, you know, I think the recognition of, of the two republics is an intermediate step, not a final step to this. Because ultimately, it doesn't, it, you know, when you listen to Putin's speech, and, and a lot of what he's been saying, the you know, speech has been said all over the last year, including in his his uh, his essay in July about Ukraine, all the statements by Russian officials, they've been really making a case that they see um, their main problem is Ukraine, right? So NATO is also part of this, it shapes their views of issues. But I think really this is the, the, the this, this kind of crisis has been going on the last year. It's really about Ukraine. It's about Ukraine leaving its orbit. They, they don't think that um, President Zelensky is gonna, was going to implement the Minsk agreements. They don't think there's any real um, you know, possibility that any Ukrainian leader, because of domestic politics, would be able to implement any kind of agreement that would be satisfactory to Russia. And so they basically said, OK, well, well, if we can't do that by negotiations, and they, they were hoping that President Zelensky would, would implement Minsk. That didn't, that didn't happen to their, to their you know, uh, satisfaction. Um, so basically, their, their policy last year has been, we we're going to try and coerce the U.S. or you know, maybe France and Germany by saying, you know, we need you to force Kyiv to implement Minsk. And if you don't do that, military force, we, you know, we, 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 otherwise we will force them to do so with military force. That's what they've been signaling. And so what, what, you know, when, you, when you look at President Putin's speech and you look at the step he took, there's a, there's a really strong mismatch because it doesn't really make any sense. Right? So he's saying, you know, he was talking about the threat of Ukraine with nuclear weapons, which is not you know, a likely thing. Some of the threat of, of Ukraine with long-range missiles. He mentioned Toshka U's, the tactical missiles. Um, so I guess Shoyu mentioned some of these things in his report too, you know, massively inflated, but they've been mentioning that for a long time. President Putin has mentioned a few times saying, even if Ukraine doesn't join NATO, what if NATO deploys missiles there that can strike Moscow and you know they can they can hit there in five or seven minutes? Again, not something that's been discussed, but he's talking, but Ukraine is developing long-range missiles domestically. And if they increase their conventional deterrence, 
it means any attempt in the future where Russia wanted to coerce Ukraine or use military force, it will be more costly. And so my view, the, the cost of inaction from Russia's perspective are greater than the cost of escalation now. And that's always been my concern that once they believe it's the case, military force is probably going to be, be the resort they use. So, you know, when, when I was listening to, to Putin's speech, obviously it was, it was, you know, a lot, a lot of it was dark. A lot of it was a repeat of what he he'd said before. Um, but th there was a queer mismatch between the problem he identified with Ukraine and the action he took. And so this is pretty clear if, if, if you know, the, if to justify recognizing Eleanor Dinar, he could have done that with, without making all these kind of really exorbitant claims about how Ukraine is a threat. In reality, the rhetoric he used and the problem he identified, it re really can only be solved by, you know, military force. Um, and, you know, again, Russian officials have been, have been claiming what Ukraine is doing is genocide. If you use that kind of term, the obvious next question is, well, what are you going to do about it? If you, if you think it's genocide, are you going to sit back and, and, and let it happen? And of course not. And so when they use that kind of rhetoric, that's clearly something that's, that's driving us. In the last, you know, four or five days, we've seen pretext of the pretext of, you know, they deployed, um, you know, kind of Russian war correspondents slash, you know, propagandists. Um, every day they've been talking about Ukrainian shelling or sabotage. A lot of pretexts have been extremely obvious, you know, fakes. Um, and of course, you know, it, it, anything that happens right when Russia has deployed 75% of its battalion tether groups on the border of Ukraine, why, why would we expect Ukraine to do anything at that point? That would be, you know, in any way inflammatory. It wouldn't make any sense. So basically, when I looked at what happened yesterday, it, it makes sense of the intermediate step. And that intermediate step is provide more pretext for a Russian escalation to go farther into Ukraine. And it's, and it's somewhat similar to what, what, what happened in 2008 in that you, you deploy Russian peacekeepers into these kind of, this kind of breakaway region. You can justify by saying, you know, if, if Ukraine, um, you know, threatens those kind of peacekeepers or, you know, now they have a, a kind of security cooperation agreement with these with these two republics, you know, a, an attack on them is similar. There's, I, th I think there is an actual like kind of security Article 5 type uh, uh, commitment so they can say, OK, we're defending our allies here and, and you know, put a put a veneer of international law on us. Do you think so that they'll, could one of the pretexts be, do you think that they'll go beyond, so right, so Putin recognized all of Luhansk and Donetsk, which includes Ukrainian ter controlled territory. Could a potential pretext be like that the Russian forces and separatist back forces are going into those territories and then they're kind of baiting a Ukrainian pushback to defend that? I mean, is that- Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. you know, I, I think that was, that was immediately, that's always been the question, right? If you recognize them, do you recognize their claims, the entire um, republics? Which you know, half, half more than half are controlled by Ukraine. So right away, it's, it's a it's a if you recognize that and you recognize their claims, well, what are you going to do about it? Or are you just you know not doing it anyway? Putin said he he recognized their claims. Um, he left it a little bit vague about what the next steps would be, but he he ultimately came up. He gave more ultimatums to, to Kiev yesterday, and it was still about you know basically you need to you know I think re recognize Crimea. You need to talk to these republics. You need to um, demilitarize. Uh, but again, you know the big. The overarching issue that Russia has been mentioning the last year, rule of Ukraine, is that they, that Ukraine's political orientation is moving in a, in a direction they do, they're not happy with, and that there are a number of red lines of things that are going on in Ukraine, including domestic policies, that they are saying we are not allowing, we're, we're not willing to let this continue. And so, you know, and so that includes you know, language laws, includes um, nationality laws, things of that nature. And so, a lot of the kind of options people mention about how can we solve this situation, it's well. Unless you you get a regime in, in in Kiev that is saying okay we will not you know step beyond these boundaries these multiple red lines that Russia has on our domestic policies there's always going to be a risk of Russian escalation and unfortunately you know the rhetoric has kind of has kind of led you know led to that conclusion 
And again, the, the, the military force Russia has de deployed is not a force you need to recognize LNR DNR, right? It's not a force you need for these. There have been a, a bunch of kind of more limited options people have mentioned saying maybe Russia will do this or that. Russia's deployed an invasion force, right? Maybe you know, the, the most optimistic um, um, kind of read of this is that they deploy this, but it's mostly about either training, you know, preparing themselves that they need to go to war, or that it's a massive bluff and that they'll back down. Well, I, I don't think the bluff is right because they connected a big buildup in spring. They're doing one now. If they, if they, if they, if they back down now, it, you know, everything in the future, the, the, the credibility of their coercive threats in the future will go down. Um, two, you know, Putin, he, he's used military force several times as leader, and he's been relatively successful for the most part. The one time he was, I, in, my, in my view, he was not successful was 2014, 2015 in the Donbass. He, he obviously, you know, what, what, what Russia's doing right now is proof that the, the solution to that conflict, the Minsk Accords, it didn't, it didn't work. They did not achieve a sustainable long-term solution to, the, to the, the issue there. And it's pretty clear that that was a kind of failed or best kind of mid, you know, um, you know, maybe not a full victory, but, you know, half victory, but clearly not what they wanted to achieve. Whereas the other options, you look at Syria, Crimea, Georgia, you know, I think they achieved their goals pretty significantly. Um, so, you know, that's my concern is that really recognizing LNR DNR does not make much sense as a final step. And, and right now you have Russian forces in a very high alert status, right? And we've been seeing that. So basically since about February 9th, Russia already had deployed a huge force there. We knew that. We knew they had a huge force in Belarus for this exercise. Uh, and that was all from the Eastern Middle District, you know, units based in Vladivostok, right? Not far from North Korea, which are now based in, you know, Western Belarus. Just, you know, all, all is really unprecedented in kind of post-Soviet Russia. Um, but the deployment of all those forces and, and the status right now, where we've seen those, the big assembly areas where a lot of this equipment was for months in Yelena and Smolensk and in Pogonova and Voronezh, that's where we saw first tank army equipment and, and 41st combined arms army equipment, among other armies. That's been there for a long time. Well, on February 9th, around that time, which was the end of the first stage of the exercise in Belarus, we started seeing that empty out. We started seeing that equipment move close to the border in Bryansk from Yelena and then into Belgorod and Kursk from, from Pogonova. And so all the things we've been seeing recently, it's it's units breaking into smaller formations into you know battalion or company task groups, right, with combined arms functions. So they have their they're bringing short range air defense systems with them, engineering systems with them, right, mine clearing charges, logistics, electronic warfare, all the stuff that if Russia wanted to fight a war, all the combined arms assets that they, they would fight with, it's there, right? And they're pulling into tactical formations and they're at a status that you would not maintain for long. Because ultimately, when, when, when you're in these, you know, small battalion field camps in, in, in the fields that are in a, in a tactical manner, you know, the, 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 it's not fun. It's not it's not enjoyable for the soldiers that are there. Morale will go down if you wait for long and maintenance will become a problem. Right? They put helicopters and these staging points in the fields and it's it's not good for maintaining equipment. Same thing with uh, with with other armor. And so what that means is really Russia's in a window for the next week or two where if they want to escalate, this is the time to do it. Otherwise, they're going to have to escalate or they have to de-escalate. And that, 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 you know, that might not necessarily mean pulling back Russian forces from, from Ukraine, but it would mean lowering the alert status and probably uh, occupying a more administrative kind of posture. And so until we see that, there's no sign of de-escalation. And so we've seen since Putin made that announcement, we've, we've only seen worse signs. So one is Rusgvardia, the Russian National Guard. We saw them enter Belarus the first time, I think, two days ago. So a number of convoys. Before that, they've been deployed. All the Russian areas on the border have been they, they deployed to, but not to Belarus. Now we saw a lot of them in Belarus. We're seeing them with the tactical markers we're seeing on other Russian vehicles. These kind of Z in a, in a square. There's a few other ones. There's a triangle, there's a circle. A few other ones we're seeing. But you know, the only you know reasonable inter interpretations that okay, this is something you'd use 
for an invasion force, either to mark different echelons, um, a task force, maybe as a, as a friendly ind indicator. I don't think that's the most likely um, one, but, but all those basically mean, okay, this is something you do for a ground invasion force. And if you're doing that for Rosquardia units and these prisoner transport trucks, it tells you something about what to think about doing, right? They might be dealing with POWs. So that kind of stuff, every day we see kind of more worse and worse signs about these things. Um, and so all, all of that, you know, one of the big things for this buildup that, that, that I think has been important is that the rhetoric changes somewhat every day, right? Different Russian officials, some are more hawkish, some are less hawkish. And sometimes people have drawn really significant signals from, you know, maybe Sergey Lavrov comes out and says, well, we're not happy, but there's still room for diplomacy. And people are like, okay, that's a good sign. Well, when he says that, there's more that, you know, there'd be more Russian BTGs coming to the border. And so the, 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 the uh, there, there's a sign on the diplomacy side, but from the military side, the situation keeps getting worse. And so anytime there is a difference between the public messaging and the, the, the military deployments, I'm going to trust the military deployments because it gives you an indication of, of what they're considering doing. And ultimately this entire buildup, especially since early January, we've seen nothing but worse and worse signs every day basically showing they're moving more and more forces close to the border preparing on shorter and shorter notice to conduct a large ground invasion if they if they uh, decide to do so um jim i don't know if you want to ask a question first but i want to get into a little bit of a conversation rob of how you think the russian forces will fare against the ukrainians um you know we had seen on Twitter those uh, Russian forces all kind of huddled up in a train station, I think it was, where you know we had heard that they're, they weren't being paid or they didn't get any food rations, um, kind of there, other things on Twitter where kind of Russian troops in Belarus were leaving trash you know, around their area and kind of other signs of morale. Um, I mean, can you talk to us a little bit about what you think the state of Russian forces are? I mean, because obviously they're going to be on the offensive at going against a, a, a Ukrainian force who's defending their home territory. And so how do you think that the, these forces will do kind of in an offensive situation like that when obviously the motivation and the pride and the, I don't know, all of the morale seems like it would be much higher on the Ukrainian side. Can you talk to us about the state of, of Russia's ability um, and capacity to do this kind of ground operation. If I could jump on that question to piggyback, um, the what I'm interested also I, that's my question as well. But I want to just add that you know so much of the the uh, OSINT you know that we're getting this the uh, this uh, open source intelligence um, the videos you know so a lot of it looks like it's Cold War equipment. Um, you know, it's I, I know they've been modernizing, certainly since the invasion of Georgia since 2008, but it takes years and years and years and years to modernize. And particularly when you put together such a huge, uh, you know, uh, mechanized uh, uh, army such as they have put together, um, you know, it just seems that that um, there that there's probably they're bringing with them some of the flaws and problems that the uh, Russian army has always had, even during the Cold War. Uh, so, so in, in combined with what um, Andrea said, how what are the what are the problems that they're bringing with them that is not so obvious when you see a video? Sure. So, um, I guess when, when we talk about what what this might look like, right? How will Russian forces will fare? Um, a, a big thing to emphasize is that you know, there's, there's kind of different views of what the goals of the campaign might be, the military goals. Um, what I wrote about is I think the most likely option is this is about compellence. And if it's about compellence, not necessarily about occupying terrain, it's about 
inflicting pain on Ukraine. So you can you can you can change a cost benefit analysis, and you might get them to implement you know different agreements. Um, that that I think that 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 argument made more sense before Minsk died, right? Before what Putin did what he did the other day. So at this point, you know, more ambitious goals might be might be the likely thing. So that's that's an issue. But basically, my, my view from the beginning has been Russian forces have a, have a significant advantage over Ukraine and fires capability. So fires and ISR and, and, a, and a lot of those things, and they have much longer range missile systems than the weapon systems the Ukrainians do. And so that, and it's a big it's a big limitation. Um, if Russian forces focus on targeting uh, Ukrainian forces, especially east of Dnieper, right? If they, if they don't they decide not to go forward on that. Um, and, and they focus on you know destroying Ukrainian military units, inflicting casualties, taking POWs, degrading Ukrainian defensive capabilities. They can do that very effectively. And they can do that very quickly. And that's just because conventional warfare is extremely fast and lethal. And what we've seen, there, are, there aren't many kind of recent examples of, of you know, peer or near peer kind of adversaries or countries using really the full bear of their conventional capabilities against another country. What we've, what we've seen, we saw this in Desert Storm, is if you get two countries who both decide to fight a conventional war and there's a significant uh, technological advantage on one side, that will, that will, be, that will, end, be, it will end very quickly, right? It will, be, it will happen very quickly. And the, the, the side with, the, with the, the worst kind of capabilities is going to get destroyed very, very fast. And, and it doesn't make very much sense. Right. And so that's um, why. I also, sorry, I'm sorry to interrupt you because I definitely want you to continue with this answer. But is could part of declaring those republics independent and then threatening to expand into territories that Ukraine operates, are they drawing Ukrainian forces in there and it raises the potential that they can pin down a sizable part of Ukraine's forces really quickly? Like, do you think that's part of the plan? Sure. So, so I, I you know, it, it, I, I don't know the Ukrainian military disposition that well. But clearly, a large amount of it is East Dnieper, right? A lot. Uh, there's a significant amount near the Donbass, and we're seeing the Russian disposition. We have a large force in Crimea. You have a large, you know, force uh, on the other side of, of the Donbass and Rostov, and then you see to the north, right, in Belgorod, in in Kursk, in uh, in Bryansk. That's where the really the most concerning element to me is, right? It's really large force. It's a force that was deployed from other areas, right? The first tank army, the fam- kind of famous, you know, unit from Moscow is there. Um, that's really a concerning area. And so from there, you can do a couple things. But one thing you can do from Belgorod or, 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 or the south of that is you can make a southern kind of uh, axis advance to try and, you know, come behind some of these Ukrainian forces that are oriented on the Donbass and basically try to flank them at the same time. In the Donbass, you can have forces try and fix those Ukrainian units in place. And so you can really put Ukrainian military units in, in a, a tough position. But even, you know, even from not just from that axis, but, you know, by they, they have enough forces they can sustain multiple axes of advance. And that means, you know, for Ukraine, it's impossible to fend everywhere. And it's impossible if you, if you have right now, you know, with this, the size of the force on Belarus, the northern border, on the Russian border, in Crimea, and then this huge amphibious uh, you know, naval capability, which could, you know, has a capability of, of, of bringing an entire brigade if they need to in, in an amphibious landing, it really puts Ukraine in a difficult, difficult position. Um, and so, you know, I, I guess, send back the, the broader point for me is it if this is just about going after the Ukrainian military, Russia, you know, with a high likelihood of success, can target them and inflict a lot of pain and do so very quickly. Um, and then the, the big question is if their their goals are more ambitious and they decide we need to occupy a lot of Ukraine, and they decide we have to go in the cities, then it becomes much more unpredictable because then all the advantages Russia has in fires capability and standoff capability and all that kind of stuff, much of that gets negated, right? It becomes mitigated. 
and Ukrainians, you know, javelins, which are, are you know, not great for, for law and distance warfare, but in a city, they're very effective, right? All the systems are very effective in the city. And, and we, you know, the US military knows this very well. And so if Russia decides to do that, it increases the risk dramatically. And it also increases the risk of civilian casualties, all the things that could lead to more kind of domestic disapproval in Russia. Um, where I, 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 don't, I, think, I think basically Russia, uh, Putin has carte blanche to go after the Ukrainian military without probably a huge domestic, you know, um, um, approval issue in Russia. But if civilians start getting killed in large numbers, that might become a different issue. Yeah, before so, we go, the, the domestic piece is super interesting, but talk to us a little more, maybe to come back to Jim's question about like some, you know, some of their weaknesses and also this idea. So if they are looking to partition part of Ukraine and therefore looking to kind of occupy territory, um, you know, how, how do morale issues come into play? Like, what do we actually think about these forces? Like we all, you know, you'll hear people, you know, hearkening back to Chechnya and other places saying that, you know, Russian forces have experience doing um, urban warfare, but is it the same, you know, those Chechen forces presumably were, you know, defensive. Um, is it the same then to go on the offensive in Ukrainian cities? I mean, do you think that there is a potential that these forces aren't actually um, as capable as maybe Putin thinks they are, or maybe he's aware of these limitations? I mean, I guess that's an open question. But I, yeah, so what do you what do you think about the the capabilities of these ground forces? Yeah, so um, basically, the, the two options are laid out, right? If they go to the cities those deficiencies in the Russian military will become a bigger problem, right? If they don't go into cities, right, they, they can make up for whatever problems they have with superior fire capability, with superior ISR, UAVs, finding, you know, they, they very good electronic warfare. They can disrupt Ukrainian units. They can, you know, prevent them from, from bringing all their kind of combined arm assets, right? And that can be a really way of affecting, negating whatever benefits the Ukrainian military has. So if, if it's just a conventional campaign, the focus on the Ukrainian military, Right, high likelihood of success for Russian military, and they can do so pretty quickly. They go into cities, you know, it becomes really unpredictable, and a lot of those limitations will become more of an issue. And so we're talking about some limitations of Russian military. Um, you know, Russian military has, has dramatically improved the last decade, right? So they, they conducted some some reforms under the previous Minister of Defense, uh, Anatoly Sergeyev, that was in 2008 to about 2011, 2012. Um, some of those reforms are useful, some of them were not. They discarded some of them when Sergei Shoyu came in. But most of them made sense, right? And the big emphasis was trying to create a professional military, because because before that, they still the legacy of Soviet military. It was still, you know, the next war will be we'll call up, we'll have lots of conscripts, we'll call them all up. They'll fall in on these, you know, very simply to use tanks and rifles, and they'll and, and the officers who don't lead, you know, soldiers normally, they'll take them and they'll, they'll you know they'll do the job, right? That that that. It kind of made sense the Cold War a little bit. It did not make any sense in the 1990s, and we saw that in Chechnya and Georgia, everywhere else. So since then, they've dramatically increased the number of their permanent readiness units, and that, and that and permanent readiness units are all full of contract soldiers. And so that was one of the big emphasis. Points emphasis was okay. We're going to we're going to um, have more soldiers who volunteer, who serve under contracts, and they're going to be more professional, right? They say serve three year contracts, conscripts serve for one year. So how useful is conscript? Really not that useful. And so. We talk about the BTG figure. You probably people heard about a lot in the news. The BTG figure is useful because these are all permanent readiness units. They're all permanent readiness units. They only have contract soldiers. They don't have any conscripts, right? So, that, so they are at a higher level of, of training, higher level of maintenance. They're much more useful and, and they're better proxy for what Russian military could use in Ukraine because we're not counting conscripts that wouldn't really necessarily play that much of a role. Um, even with that issue. So the, the last 10 years, 
Russia had a, a, conducted a, a 10 year state arms program uh, called GBV 2020, ended it at the end of 2020. Um, it's, and this is, this is another lesson of the Georgia war about issues they had equ you know, equipment deficiencies. Well, they basically looked and said, we need to increase the number of modern, piece of modern equipment in the military. And one of Putin's um, May decrees when he came back in office as president back in 2012 was we're gonna, the Russian military is going to go from, you know, it's like 12%, 50% modern equipment. I forget the exact number. And we're going to reach 70% by the end of 2020. And, and modern equipment here is defined as new or heavily modernized piece of equipment. And so GBV 2020, it, the, the, all the new kind of brand new systems that were not Soviet systems, Russia failed to procure those, essentially. All right, so Super 7 wasn't procured. Um, Armada tanks wasn't procured. Boomerang, um, Kurganets, um, a lot of the new submarines, they, they missed a lot of those deadlines. What they did do is they procured in large numbers modernized versions of Soviet air equipment, right? So instead of Su-27 fighters, it was Su-27SM or Su-30SM, Su-35S, uh, K-52 helicopters, Mi-28N helicopters, and then tanks, it was you know, T-72B3s, and, and what this meant was, okay, this is not the Armada, right? It's not the, these new systems, but the, the previous deficiencies they had, where they had, you know, we talked about tanks, for example, they didn't have very good night vision equipment. When you talk about T-72B3s, the kind of standard Russian uh, military tank at this point, the 2016 version, um, you have better optics for night, you have better thermal optics, and both the, the, the gunner and the, and the commander have separate optics, right? So the commander can find targets, communicate to the gunner, and so on. All this makes a big difference in terms of the, the effectiveness of those systems. And in, 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 in Ukraine in 2014, a lot of these equipment differences made a huge deal. And so in a couple of battles in August 2014, Russia brought in some of these new tanks, right? And, and, and they kind of gave up plausible deniability because these are tanks that were never in Ukraine. But these tanks could launch anti-tank guided missiles from the, from the tubes. And those had a range of four to, you know, about four to five kilometers, right? So about twice the range of a normal tank cannon. So when they came into fights with Ukrainian uh, tank battalions, there are a number of cases where they, they, they massively destroyed the entire Ukrainian tank battalions by launching ATGMs from their tanks, which had standoff capability, right? It meant that Ukraine could not strike back. And that, you know, that simple conventional advantage was, was, was decisive in some of these battles. It was very important and it played a really key role. And so that will happen again if they get into this kind of fight. And so the, the Russian mode, the, the improvements have been Okay, is it is it perfect? No, a lot of deficiencies, but a lot of things have improved. We talk about the personnel; that's still a problem, right? So the number of contract soldiers has increased. They've missed all the deadlines, though. They had, you know, I think they wanted to hit four hundred seventy-five thousand by now. They're at kind of four hundred five thousand, maybe. They, they don't really give a lot of good data because you know if they, they give data when it's when, it, when it when it's good, and they don't give data when it's when it's not great. Um, and so they still have a lot of conscripts, right? So maybe a third of the enlisted soldiers are conscripts and they can't be used effectively. Even with contract soldiers, um, they used to publish data on the number of hazing cases, the number of soldiers commit suicide, all that kind of stuff. They stopped doing that. And, you know, part of that is secrecy. Part of it is we don't want to share our dirty laundry. There are still anecdotes pretty regularly of really awful hazing incidents of, you know, of soldiers being, you know, found, uh, you know, they found dead in a training area. They call it suicide, but you know the guy will have a plastic bag over his head and it'll be taped around, right? Where it makes no sense of suicide, clearly something else happened. That stuff happens still. You know, junior soldiers get their, their phones taken, get their money extorted by officers. All, all those kind of things. You know, all militaries have an issue with hazing. Some of the kind of hazing issues they have are not things you hear about in the U.S. military because they're, they're just far worse and they're far more common. And so there's still a lot of those issues. One of the ones that you mentioned recently was the the soldiers, uh, the committee of soldiers' mothers 
Um, they got reports from, from people who lived in one of small towns in Bogorod, where a lot of the equipment from Pocanova was arriving. And they basically said, soldiers from the, the 2nd Motorized Rifle Division based in, outside of Moscow, that 100 of them or so had been holed up in this one room at the train station. Um, the, I don't think it was heating. They, didn't, they weren't given food. They weren't brought water. And the officers left them on the first day. And they were there for five days. They didn't know what was going on. And basically, the, the conscripts, who already get paid almost nothing, if you're not providing them rations, right, they can't afford to buy food themselves necessarily. And so those kind of issues, you know, all, all, any, any soldiers in any military have to sleep on the floor sometimes. But, you know, the case of five days of, you know, not being provided food, water, and have, not having officers, you know, living with them, that's worse than what we expect from a, from a, you know, NATO or Western military. So those issues are still there, right? And, and one of the problems still is that they don't really have a NCO core, because that's still kind of a new concept. Um, there's still that, you know, they, they have a lot of officers. Officers do perform a lot of functions that are still something we would use for staff NCOs or NCOs in, in Western militaries. That is still a problem. And, you know, to what extent does that become an issue if they go into urban terrain? It, it remains a position. It'll probably be an issue. And one of the things we saw in Syria is that most units Russia deployed to Syria were their elite forces. So it was Spetsnaz units. It was Rosvedichiki. It was VDV units. It was elite motorized rifle units. They were not sending, you know, other units to kind of make up numbers. They were sending the most elite units. And a lot of those units, like Spetsnaz units, were, you know, be used for like combo security, right? Kind of very mundane task. And so, again, it tells you something that, you know, okay, if, if you're bringing in less elite units and have to do this in an invasion or train, are they going to be perform, able to perform at that, at that level? Urban training is always hard to fight. And if you have to occupy multiple cities, right, those efficiencies could come out. It could become more of an issue. Um, they deployed Rosguardia. One of the reasons behind that is that these guys are better for occupying areas. They've been deployed to Syria as well. We know that they've been used. They have military police guys that deployed that you kind of also this kind of function. But a lot of those deficiencies, if they decide to go to cities, will could become a problem. If they if they stay outside of cities, I think for the most part, they can achieve their goals without those things becoming too much an issue, though. All right, Jim, last question. We're about at the end of time. Yep. Thank you uh, for your kindness and patience <laughs> to allow me to ask a question. That, no, I'm just kidding. Um, yeah, no, the, the final thing is this. You know, we've been resupplying uh, rather late in the, in the game, uh, putting in more javelins, uh, other kinds of, of U.S. equipment, other allies are doing that as well. Do you think it's too little too late? Uh, and do you think uh, as the window is really closing for this kind of uh, resupply for Ukraine, what do they need right now? Absolutely. So one of the things that's come out from this, I hope is a lesson learned for us, is that, um, you know, the U.S. military is based around having a very effective air force and air power. Right. And so all of our capabilities on the ground side are, are partially a result of, well, do we need ground based you know, air defense systems? No, because you know aviation takes care of our defensive counter air, right? It, it provides air cover. It provides uh, close air support. So that means a lot of the organic fire capabilities that the Russian military has, or ground-based air defense systems the Russian military has, um, we don't have those systems because we have a very capable air force. One of the problems is when we're looking at equipping your military like Ukraine, how do we? How, what are the best kind of systems they need? A lot of the systems are not systems that we actually have in the U.S. military because they're not they're not going to have air cover. They're going to have to fight in a situation in which they have to have ground-based air defense systems, all the air systems to make up for that. Um, so one of the issues is, you know, we don't have ground-based you know, air defense systems except for the Patriot or THAAD, which are not that relevant in the scenario, because even if you deploy them, it takes time to train, expensive. And of course, if you only have one or two batteries, they can still be destroyed, destroyed if, you send, if you fire enough missiles at them, right? So it's not, it's not a panacea. Um, so that's part of the issue. We don't have good short-range or medium-range air defense systems. That's one problem. 
another one is, you know, we've talked about the, the point javelins. Javelins are, are, are effective in anything gun missile, but they're short range, right? And so if you're fighting in a rural area and ultimately, you, you know, the Russian military can pick you up on UAVs and bring in, you know, artillery batteries that can be blanket grid square with cluster munitions. Well, javelins, you know, they're not necessarily going to be that effective, right? You're still at a significant risk. So the systems that would be most useful in this case would be longer range and anything guided missiles. So an example is the Israeli spike in Los, which is a 30 kilometer range. Um, you could put these on, on you know, Jeeps, you know, they're used heavily in the Gurno Karabakh war where, you know, it, one kind of uh, truck can you know, a small, small like Jeep can carry like 10 of these things, right? 30 kilometer range, significant force capability, force multiplier there compared to Javelin, which is, you know, under five kilometers, right? So that's one uh, issue. The other one is loitering munitions. Loitering munitions are a huge um, change in kind of warfare because they're extremely long range um, and they're, they're much more transportable. And so if you want to fight in an unconventional manner, right, the weapons that would be useful are these kind of weapons, right? And so loitering munition, right, you can put them in the back of a sedan, some of these, you can put them in the back of a, you know, a generic van, right? And some of these munitions have a 200 kilometer range. Right. And OK, they're not they're not the, they don't have the most powerful warhead, but a simple operator can use that, hit a target 200 kilometers away. And it makes, you know, units operating in kind of dispersed, distributed manner much, much more effective. And it's something U.S. military is trying to figure out right now where, again, because of the, this kind of aviation dominance, we haven't deployed or developed those organic fire capabilities at the you know, battalion level that, that are very long range. And so, like, you know, Marine infantry is still using 81 million mortars as their long range asset which is ridiculous in, in, in all honesty. So one of the problems that we, you know, the spike in those, U.S. military is starting to procure them. We're starting to put those on patches now. Loitering munitions, I know U.S. military is developing too. We have some, but not really the best ones. But the, the, the best kind of systems that we make the most sense are a lot of things Israel has developed. And it is, they develop it as a kind of niche, it's really a useful niche. Um, Israel has not been willing to provide those arms to Ukraine, partially because, you know, Russia plays a key role in Syria and Israel likes to be able to, you know, strike targets in Syria if they need to without Russia interfering. Um, so some of, the, some of the issues is that we don't have the right weapons to provide. Javelins and stingers, right? Stingers are okay, but man pads, if it's one guy using it, it, it usually they're most effective when you have radar systems where, so, where radar can say, okay, we pick up a, um, a fire coming in, we know it's hostile, and now it's gonna arrive to you in, you know, whatever, 10 or 15 seconds, and now you have a limited engagement envelope. Now you can engage it. It's much more difficult if you if you're some guy on the ground. You say, "Oh, there's some kind of flight aircraft," and you, you know try and fly, you know, fire a missile. And of course, you know how well you're going to be able to determine if it's friendly or foe. You're probably not, and that's why we keep seeing friendly fire in these kind of recent conflicts, including Georgia and in Nagorno-Karabakh as well. Um, so stingers, or maybe they're okay, but they're not the most effective system. Same with javelins. And we talk about what Russia might do if Russia stays out of cities these systems will be less effective and less useful. If they decide to go into cities, right, and, and it makes an insurgency possible, then these systems become more effective because the range becomes uh, um, reduced and it means javelins, stingers could be very effective. So those are some of the, the, the big questions here. Of course, when you provide stingers, there's always the issue of, you know, what if it gets into someone else's hands? Those are a threat to, you know, commercial aircraft. That's a problem too. Um, so there's, there's a long list of issues here. And the other one is, you know, I, I know some reporting that the U.S. is considering a kind of training equipping program if Russia invades will continue to potentially provide arms. Um, you know, if, if that happens, right, there will be a significant escalation with Russia, right? Because they're not they're not just going to stand back. They've de deliberately deployed certain forces to turn NATO involvement in this any kind of conflict here, right? They deployed MiG-31Ks with Kinjal missiles, 2,000 kilometer range missiles. 
to Kaliningrad, they're pulling to Syria. And part of that is a wink wink saying, we can make your life difficult, NATO, in, in multiple areas if you decide to go into Ukraine, leave it alone, let us do what we're going to do. So if, if it doesn't happen, there are significant escal escalation risks, right? We, we Everyone heard Putin's speech, right? It kind of gives you indication of where his, his head is at. Um, he obviously, he's lived in a bubble the last two years, right? We, you know, he's probably the most afraid man of COVID in the world. Um, so you know, there, there are issues there, right? There, there are concerns about all these kind of things. And so and I, I'm not sure we've thought through all the escalation risks that could come in the next you know, week or two, because there are going to be a lot of them, and it's going to be really important to manage them. So, so you know, training, equipping Ukrainian forces is going to be, you know, an important thing to consider. But the way the way it's done is always going to be really important because if it's done the wrong way. Russia is going to respond in some way. That could be cyber attack. It could be other things. But there will be some kind of asymmetric response to NATO if NATO decides to help, you know, sustain Ukrainian forces once Russian for, Russian forces are there, once they're kind of under fire. So it's just one of those mini kind of things that's really kind of not known right now, but something that we need to consider. Yeah, I think that our next podcast with you, will talk about potential escalation risks. And yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, I mean, that's a big one. And, you know, it's kind of trickled into the discourse, um, more focus on it. But I don't, like you just said, I think a lot of things still kind of unthought through or not being discussed. Um, Rob, this was amazing. I learned an incredible amount. Um, thank you for all of the work that you do in helping keep everyone informed um, and understanding what's happening. And hopefully um, we'll have you back as uh, developments continue to unfold. So yeah. thanks for doing this. Thank you so much. And just to all the Brussels Sprouts listeners, you can follow Rob on Twitter and get a lot of this in your daily feed. So it's important. Awesome. All right. Thanks, Rob. Thanks so much for having me on. Thank you for listening to another episode of Brussels Sprouts brought to you by the Transatlantic Security Team at the Center for a New American Security. You can find all of our previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And please remember to rate and review Brussels Sprouts so that new listeners are able to find the show.